0: The number one financial destination, Yahoo Finance
1: This is She and Her feminist podcast with a Southern Spin. I'm Anita Rao, and my co-host is Sandra Davidson.
2: I've had so many funny different reactions. I get people asking me, oh, what is that? Is that a necklace? Um, It looks like a fashion accessory. Uh, Other times, when I kind of explain what it is, they'll use different adjectives, like, oh, so it's like a second nose, or it looks really cute. Um, And a couple of them might be Uh, A little on the more insensitive side sometimes, but more often than not, it's really out of curiosity if they haven't seen it before.
1: You just heard from Wendy Liu, a journalist, writer, and disability activist. Wendy was born with vocal cord paralysis. It doesn't affect her voice or her ability to speak or move, but it does affect her breathing. Wendy wears a tracheostomy tube. It's a small, cylindrical-looking device that helps her breathe. Wendy's disability is a defining part of her life and her feminism, and it's actually a topic she talks about a lot in her
3: writing. Here's an excerpt from a piece I wrote for Bustle called thirty Microaggressions People with Disabilities Face on a Daily Basis. As a disabled woman of color, I can think of few things that rattle my cage more than microaggressions. These negative, condescending statements are often subtle, and there's a whole host of microaggressions people with disabilities experience in particular all the time. When we talk about diversity and intersectionality, what usually comes to mind are race, gender, religion, and sexuality, all of which are significantly important issues in the world of identity politics. That being said, the disability community is often an afterthought, Too often do we forget that people with disabilities, too, have to deal with microaggressions on the regular. They can take place in everyday conversations, making them hard to call out unless you want to be looked down upon for making a big deal out of nothing. The following list is by no means comprehensive. It only covers just a few of the everyday microaggressions that many people with disabilities deal with all the time, in the workplace, at school, and beyond. Number one, reducing the disability to an unfortunate fact. Number two, deciding for others how bad their disability is or isn't. Number three, assuming that disability always means inability. Number four, assuming the disability is a negative trait.
1: That's an excerpt from a piece Wendy wrote for Bustle called 13 Microaggressions People with Disabilities Face on a Daily Basis. I first met Wendy in college through a leadership program, and it's called a leadership program, but it was much more about understanding who you are, becoming more self-aware, and figuring out the kind of strengths and weaknesses you show up with every day when you're engaging with other people. Wendy was a couple of years younger than me in the program, but I was on the selection committee choosing her particular class. So I got to know her through the interview process, and I remember even from her written application I was struck by her thoughtfulness and her humor, and then seeing her on interview day, talking with all the other applicants, I could tell right away that she really had a gift for connecting with other people. I graduated a couple of years ahead of Wendy, but I've been following her and her writing since she graduated, and her career has really taken off. She's been published in the New York Times in Bustle and Teen Vogue, but at the same time has been through a lot of big life transitions, including living independently for the first time. For the first 22 years of her life, Wendy pretty much always had a nurse around to help her manage her disability. She's had between 30 and 50 nurses over the years, who stayed by her side in case anything happened.
2: When I was younger, uh, every so often I would have kind of these incidents where if my drape tube fell out or if it got blocked, um, that was a really dangerous situation where um, I basically can't breathe. You know, it's like if you put your hand over your nose and mouth, um, eventually you're going to pass out or you're not going to be able to breathe for a long time. Uh, for instance, um, I remember one of the nurses that I had for a very long time, and she's a very close friend of mine. Um, her name is Jean. When I was in fifth grade, um, Jean came on her very first day uh, to pick me up from school. And I remember... At one point, um, it was after I had eat, maybe eaten a snack or worked on my homework some, um, Jean had turned around uh, for just a split second, and I had just finished um, kind of like a breathing exercise with uh, a device that is supposed to help you practice breathing through your nose and mouth. Um, and I took that off, and then all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. It felt like something had just been stuffed into my trach tube, and all of the air had kind of been sucked out. I instantly just fell to the kitchen floor, um, just, like, gasping. And I remember Jean, she just kind of turned around, and there was, like, a look of horror on her face. And I was, like, trying to speak with my mouth, but I don't think any words came out. I, I kept on it being like, get it off, you know, get it off. Um, But eventually, I just kind of fell into cardiac arrest. And so a very dangerous situation, as you can imagine. Um, and then when I woke up, my sister was there, and Jean was just hovering over me with an bamboo bag. It's kind of, uh, it helps to put air back into your system. And um, basically, Jean had saved my life. She and my sister both saved my life and they got the ambulance there. So, um, definitely, Jean and a lot of my nurses that I've had throughout the years, they absolutely have been essential to, um, to me and my, both my well being, but also um, my identity. You know, they're people that taught me how to be patient with myself, how to respect my disability, and um, definitely wouldn't be where I am say stay without them.
1: When Wendy was a kid, she almost always had an adult around. Her parents would drop her off at school, and a nurse would meet her there. They'd be with her in class, and sometimes they even sat with her at lunch, which was especially hard in middle school. By the time Wendy got to high school, she started to get frustrated with always having someone around.
2: I started to also have a little bit of a rebellious streak. So um I would sometimes uh, skip out on a certain class and go to a different class and without telling my nurse. Um, <laughs> and it gave me this really uh, really good satisfaction, you know, knowing that someone wasn't following me or knowing that they didn't know where I was. It was very exciting and thrilling to me, and I felt like, When that happened, I could just be free and I think a part of it is it was definitely like a a mental and emotional experience because um, when I'm in class, they're not like sitting right next to me. They're not, you know, watching me every second, but they know where I am and they can come to me whenever they need to. Um, And I think that uh, at certain points frustrated me and I wanted to kind of get away. I wanted to be somewhere without other people, um, being around me. And I was, you know, 15 years old. I had a high school boyfriend. I wanted to do things that I thought other kids my age could do, um, without even giving it a second thought. It gives me fond memories now because, um, sometimes it would be awkward because it's like, oh, I want to see him by the lockers, or I want to like, you know, hug him really quick in between classes, And, you know, it's it's kinda weird if you're, you know, holding hands with your significant other while a parent or or nurse is like <laughs> just hanging right to, behind you. Yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> Wendy finished college in two thousand fourteen and moved to New York City to study journalism at Columbia. This was the first time she had ever lived all by herself.
2: You know, if I had to choose any place to start, you know, experiencing things on my own, I, I ended up choosing, like, one of the biggest, most diverse, bustling cities in the world, New York. It was absolutely a scary experience, um, and I think I didn't want to admit that as much as um, I felt inside, particularly to, you know, make sure that my parents felt like I was okay here. Um, but I remember they they drove me up to New York with all of my stuff, Um, in the back of the car and helped me move into my new apartment that on the Upper West Side um, in Manhattan. Um, And, you know, there were several moments where I almost couldn't believe this. I couldn't believe that I had decided to move to New York on my own after, you know, 22 years of, you know, having someone follow me. Um, I couldn't believe that I had decided to do it. And I couldn't believe that my parents had allowed me to do it. Um, because, you know, they love me so much and they care about my well being so so much. And it really meant a lot that they trusted me to do that for myself and my career. Um, and I remember the first night that I was in at Columbia, um, alone, uh, and my parents just like drove off. I part of me was, you know, very excited, but I think most of it was a lot of fear um, because, you know, you suddenly have all of this freedom to yourself. You can do whatever you want. You know, you have a lot of independence. Um, and, what, you know, what am I going to do with it? I think it took a few months for me to get used to it, you know, having so much freedom and independence. And I think, I think I've become a lot more stronger but also a lot more skeptical than I used to be. A lot of people are really kind and friendly here, but a lot of people are also not. And so there have absolutely been times where, you know, I would be a little nervous walking outside alone at night, and I would also have experiences that really, really angered me and helped, actually, and helped to further um, impassion me to pursue feminist topics in my reporting, becoming more informed and more impassioned and more experienced about things that... Are not fair or, you know, things that happen to me or other people with disabilities or other people in marginalized communities. And I think back when I was younger, because I had a nurse around all the time, they kind of helped to be my, my eyes and my ears. And so having that person around me, they, they essentially could take care of me. But then when I came to New York, um, I was, I was by myself and I had to be my own. I mean, my own eyes and ears, basically, um, and, uh, but I think, you know, two and a half years in, um, I'm, I, think, I like to think that I'm doing pretty good, uh, and, um, but it's definitely something that I, I continue to have to work
1: on. Life in New York fueled her feminism and her career. After finishing grad school, Wendy took a job at Bustle, a national news website for millennial women, and it was there that she first started writing publicly about her disability.
2: It was kind of my job to cover the news from a feminist angle, um, but that was also kind of the first time that I was given a platform to write about myself, because Bustle relies heavily on personal essays and experiences from their writers, Uh, and so... You get this platform to talk about yourself to thousands of people. I think before that, uh, I had just had maybe one or two experiences of sharing my story, um, to the public. I think at first, uh, I didn't realize how much impact it could have for good reason or bad reason or whatever. I didn't think that I was going to, you know, reach so many people, uh, that it, as it did, uh, and that tells me that this is something that people want to read more about, um, and this is also something that affects millions of others beyond me as well. I mean, one thing that I always try to say in a lot of my articles is that, um, my disability is a significant part of my identity and, um, I wouldn't be who I am without it. Uh, at the same time, there are a lot of other aspects of my, of myself that don't have to do with my disability, obviously. Um, and I do write other articles related to other interests. Um, but that being said, I do think that I have absolutely embraced disability as a beast for myself. It's something that I'm really passionate about, both from a personal and a professional, uh, angle. Um, and so, at least, you know, for right now, um, I am absolutely all in. And I would say it's
1: it's my calling. That's Wendy Liu. She's a journalist based in New York City who writes about social issues, gender, politics, and disability. Wendy's written for The New York Times, Teen Vogue, and The Columbia Journalism Review. Check out her work at wendyliewrites.com. And on Twitter at Wendy Lou Writes. Thanks for tuning back into She and Her season three, and we'll be back with a brand new episode next week. See you then.